you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week, we are kicking off our coverage of my favorite comic of all time, period, straight up. We are at last going to be discussing volume one of the manga Banana Fish by Akemi Yoshida. Now, we briefly talked about the series' first chapter last year when we had an episode about the very first issue of the manga magazine Pulp, which ran the initial English translation of the series. But for this week, we'll be talking about the full first volume. And before we really jump into discussing it, I'll just go ahead and give some standard historical context, publication history, creative credits, all of that sort of thing. So Banana Fish ran for about nine years from May 1985 to April 1994 in a Japanese shoujo comics magazine, shoujo meaning girls comics, uh, entitled Bisatsu Shoujo Comic. It would later have its name changed to Betsukomi. And this magazine previously published Yoshida's prior series, California Story, which is a bit similar to Banana Fish and that it is also about American characters and features a lot of homosexuality. And the magazine also ran a series called They Were Eleven by Moto Hagio, which I bring up in passing just because I already know I'm going to make you read that comic once its upcoming English release comes out. And then plenty of other fairly well-known shoujo series to people that read shoujo manga, given that you don't read manga at all, other than when I make you and when it has dinosaurs in it. I don't think you would really know the other titles, but fairly significant enough shoujo comics magazine. And when it comes to the English releases of Banana Fish, its first translation began in Pulp Magazine, in 1997, Pulp ran up through 2002 before being canceled, at which point Viz Media, the publishers of Pulp, and they still have the license, they're like the ones who put out the collected edition that we're reading today. Uh, Viz moved the series over to another magazine they published entitled An America Extra, where it then ran until 2004. This initial translation of the series was flipped, meaning that the artwork was switched in the order of presentation. And after An America Extra ended, 
basically that was the end of that translation. They did not get all the way through the series because, again, the original run went for 10 years, so it's really long. But after the end of An America Extra, Viz then started a second translation where they preserved the original orientation of the artwork. And it's this second translation that still has the volumes in print and like available easily digitally and all of that and actually translated the entire series. So it's basically the natural go-to of the versions because it's the one that's available and that actually covered the entire manga. And, and the art isn't flipped, which was a problem last time. Yeah. This time around, it is preserved as it was created and is meant to be read. Now, even though I'm saying there's two translations, there's really no significant differences as far as I'm concerned. It is almost entirely the same English credits. We have a translation and adaptation done by Matt Forn and Carl Gustav Horn. Uh, Horn worked in editorial capacity on both the collected editions and on Pulp, the actual magazine. The lettering and touch-up art credits are to Cato on the collected volume and in most issues of Pulp, with like a chapter's exception credited to Mary Kelleher for lettering and touch-up, but yeah, more or less, pretty much the same exact people worked on both versions. And if you are an obsessive Banana Fish fanatic like I do, and therefore own both versions, looking at them side by side, you'll see that there are large portions where like the translations are exactly the same and where they do differ. You know, it's like slightly different worded, but but there's not really anything that feels especially notable, you know, like there's no like censorship issues or anything like that between the two of them. So even though I've read both, have both, I'm not really going to be talking about differences between the two, except maybe once or twice here or there, just because there's not a lot of difference to remark upon. Basically, the same people did both. Exactly, yeah. It's like the non-flipped later version just feels a little bit like refined and cleaned up is about it. Before we jump into the actual plots, I will pose the question, before reading this, did you recognize the J.D. Salinger reference or did you have no idea what a banana fish was? Not a fucking clue. It's a J.D. Salinger reference. I only know Capture in the Rye and I hated it, so I didn't explore any of his other stuff. Yeah, so it's referencing a short story that he wrote entitled A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. And it's a weird story. It's very short. If you're interested in seeing, I can like link you where I read it. But it's essentially about a 
military veteran who has lost his shit. Like, there's no, like, specific diagnosis given, but he's clearly struggling and mentally unstable after the war. And he's staying at this, like, beachside hotel with his wife, who portions of the story involve, like, the wife talking to her family who are talking to her about how worried they are about her husband's behavior. And essentially, the husband spends a lot of time down at the beach playing with this little girl. And as they're just, like, splashing in the water, he tells her to watch out for banana fish, which he says are fish that go down into holes in the sand to eat bananas that are there, but then they can't help themselves and they eat so many bananas that they get too fat to get back out of the sand and then they die. So it's a very weird, nonsensical thing, but the story ends with the husband killing himself up in his hotel room. So it's a very brief and I'm not really conveying like the style by just talking about the plot, but it's just kind of a very odd brief little story where you're not fully sure how it's going to go or what's going to happen. And yeah. So is it like, um, uh, written kind of the same way that catch in the rye is it's the, uh, Oh, I'm forgetting my high school English terms. Um, flow of consciousness something like that style you know where it's like the character in the moment with the character and every thought that goes through the character's head getting written out it's not exactly the same because it's not really like focused in on one person's thoughts but it still has okay. that kind of feel because just like a lot of it's really conveyed in the dialogue and it still has that just, for lack of a better word, weird tone to it in the way that, like, the uh, the husband in question, the military vet, you're just kind of sort of following the flow of his conversation and his thoughts, which they're not, like, full-on incomprehensible. You can tell that it makes sense to him, but it doesn't actually make full sense. So you're very cognizance that you're following this character who doesn't have a firm grasp on reality okay yeah and then the banana fish image being connected with death so there's your little literary context and just setting up the sort of themes that we may expect to follow through on oh yeah it's so that makes what the doctor says about it make a lot more sense. Because I think he explains the story, but the story is so nonsensical that I was like, what on earth is happening in this scene? Why is he talking about this? And I'm like, oh, he is, it is, that is the full, like, that is actually just the story that J.D. Salinger wrote. It just is that weird. And, yeah. like, when you summarize it, you're like, yeah, no, it's, it's weird. <laughs> it okay. is very weird, but I think the main takeaway is are just the association with death, that sort of subject matter concern. And then also 
I suppose you could stretch if you wanted also to the specific post-war context with regards to the character of Griff also as the veteran in the book. Design-wise, graphic design-wise, the American editions somewhat unusually at this point in time in terms of English adaptation, they don't use the same illustrations for the covers as the Japanese volumes, at least not the original run. It's all still Yoshida artwork, but different choices in what art is used. They all have a consistent color palette. They're all yellow. They all sort of do a gradient from like a darker goldenrod to like a lighter yellow. And if they're all just like sitting on a bookshelf like mine is, then it's just like this immediate distinct stack of just like entirely yellow books. And I guess I'm just curious to go ahead and ask, what do you think of this cover image for volume one? Did it, I guess, evoke anything for you tonally or give you any thoughts on what to expect? I barely looked at the cover until now because I just started reading. <laughs> um, I mean, I assumed it was yellow because bananas. Yeah. Yeah. Are yellow. And like the. So I'd already read part one, obviously, before we did this, because I'd read part one in pulp. And I assumed that there was maybe more Vietnam stuff. And like, you, when, it, when you look at this, if I take away the context of knowing a bit more about what it's about and who this character is, it looks to me like, okay, this is like a young man in Nam lying on like a bunk bed with the gun but like young people in violence okay sorry if it was a weird question i obsess over every but, single aspect of this um i i hadn't looked at the cover really before until you you said that because i was like okay what does this make me think of i'm like mm, i don't know because i'm trying to put it outside the concept having read it as well because like i just scrolled right past and started reading the actual book yeah i read this I think what's notable about this English edition cover is, first of all, it's AG. It's not Ash, it's AG, which is sort of an interesting choice, given that AG is the deuteragonist, not the protagonist. But listeners, if you haven't seen it, it's basically this image of AG laying on a bed um, we see him more or less from like the waist up. So it's him shirtless on a bed facing the viewer, a not super clear expression, like presumably perhaps worried, like it's not a happy expression. And his a very arm, slight frown. Yeah, like a slight frown. And his arm is hanging down, holding a gun. And I just really love this image and how it sort of conveys both immediately the violence of the gun and that this is a crime drama, but also the expression and sort of vulnerability on AG's face sort of also immediately sells that like emotional vulnerability that we get a bit of here. We'll get more and more as the series goes on. I just love everything about this book, hence why I'm going on too long about the cover even. 
last note before the actual plots in terms of my curiosity of like what you think in terms of presentation and such they don't actually include like dividing marks or texts specifically noting where one chapter ends and the next begins it all just keeps going straight way through so I guess I'm just curious if you had any thoughts on that reading it or just sort of like the sense of pacing throughout I mean I obviously I kind of knew where the first chapter ended because like we got we I, I've already seen the first chapter by itself but um beyond that I didn't really I couldn't tell where it was like beginning and ending really like I'm assuming it was just with some of the scenes where they ended some of the slightly more cliffhanger moments but it didn't it it, it reads like it was written to be read together it just like a impre- Brian Michael Bendis comic yeah yeah that's a good point it just impresses me like the pacing is so constantly like forward momentum, you know, like it just, at least to me personally, reads really smoothly and just always has my interest and is just building and building on itself. And I think it works really well without needing like designated pause points or anything like that. It, Really, like, I think if you put all 19 volumes in one fucking book, you know, and just no divisions, whatever, it all really just reads like one gigantic story. Maybe that's a stupid note. But with that said, moving on to the actual events of Banana Fish, it opens, of course, with chapter one, as we discussed back in the pulp episode. So, you know, I'll try not to go on too long about chapter one, more than just basic necessity, since we already discussed it a bit, but immediately sets the series as being very grounded in specific historical context. We open up with the flashback to Vietnam, where... We have a small troop of six soldiers all sort of just talking around. And the two main characters of note here are named Max, Max Lobo, and Griffin or Griff for short. And essentially what happens is that Griff doesn't start in the scene. He walks into it after having gone away supposedly to use the bathroom and when he comes back he appears to have had a total mental breakdown in which he grabs a gun and starts mowing down the rest of his squad mates before max manages to essentially shoot him in the knees making him drop the gun and stop attacking and griff is just sort of mumbling incoherently to himself. And he tells Max Lobo, banana fish, I saw it. And that's the closest thing to a coherent sentence that they can get out of him. So right from the get-go, establishing just the mystery of what banana fish is, 
and we then immediately tie these mysterious acts of violence into the present day uh present day of the story when we flash forward to new york in 1985 which again is the year that the manga began publication so concurrent to when it would have been coming out this is reagan era america i think just interesting to keep in mind is just again the specific historic context especially with regards to not that it's specifically referencing it but just a thing to keep in mind with regards to how the characters live their lives, especially with regards to being gay or doing gay things, you know? And yeah, it's not really specifically name-dropped a lot, you know? Like, the characters aren't talking about Reagan, and they're not name-dropping AIDS, but there's a certain... Ronald just... Reagan does not appear in this comic? Yeah. But there's just a certain air to the way that characters act and sort of perceive themselves and talk about male-male relationships that just feels so grounded in that moment. And maybe we'll have more to say specifically as the series goes on than in Volume 1 specifically. But I just think the historical context is really sort of pivotal to the sort of moment that this story is in. But anywho, um, we then move into agents of the New York Police Department discussing a series of mysterious suicides that have happened in the past several months among suspected mobsters. Uh, just mysterious deaths. Weird shit's happening. There's a funny Tony little soprano offed himself for no reason and they can't figure out what's going on. Exactly. And in one case, there's just this silly little choice of detail where Yoshida has chosen to juxtapose like a panel of a freaking out woman who's like discovered one of the bodies next to a panel of the painting Scream because this man has offed himself underneath a print of Scream on his wall. I also just love that painting. But anywho, I suppose since we're getting into it, it's sort of a, just a, now that we're actually moving into the comic itself, and it'll be consistent throughout, I guess I'll go ahead and mention and ask about Yoshida's style structurally as an artist, is very consistent. It's basically entirely page layouts consist of square and rectangular panels. You know, there's not really much, if any, deviation from that in terms of different shapes or double-page spreads. There's certainly not any like new 52 batwoman style really off the wall sort of thing um we get like variety in sort of the orientation and sizes of the squares but that's about it i guess i'm just curious to hear any thoughts you have about her general 
artistic style as a whole, whether it relates to that or any other aspect as well that you want to talk about? I think that the panel layouts are really strong. Like, it isn't on a grid, but it feels like um, like the 80s Frank Miller stuff that's done on the 16 panel grids. Well, like, most of it isn't broken down that much at all. But if you look at, like, for example, Dark Knight Returns, it and you'll you'll see that grid when you're actually looking for it. This feels like the like that in terms of the pacing, where the way that the panels are broken up, and you know which ones are large, which ones are small, and so on, works really well for like just moving the eye along the page. It's like I think it's very effective. Yeah. It feels just like really skilled, well done use of, you know, sort of traditional fundamental structures of, you know, like style of comic panels and all that, but just really cleanly and efficiently done. And I don't have very many instances throughout in terms of just like any sort of confusion of what's happening or anything like that. My one confusion was who all the blonde people are, but um, they helped that that got narrowed down once I actually read more than part one. And once half of them got mowed down. Yeah. There's now there's like three blonde people and you know, two of them have different haircuts and one of them only ever says banana fish. So it's a lot less difficult. Yeah. But moving out of the police scenes, we get our first introduction to the star of the manga. This is 17-year-old gang leader Ash Lynx. He is a skinny, blonde, white kid. He throughout both here and across the series in general, is going to be the recipient of a lot of talk about just how beautiful he is, just like how physically attractive and alluring other characters think he is, just sort of like an arresting presence. And in some cases, that's going to be sort of less sinister But in others, which characters are saying it and in what context has a lot to do with one of sort of the, I guess, defining aspects of his backstory and his history, which is that I'll try not to divulge more specific details than what we get in this volume, but he is clearly the victim of past sexual abuse past specifically childhood sexual abuse and throughout this volume you know you'll get some characters who sort of remark about his appearance in terms of just being like oh we thought that this gang leader would be uglier and more rough around the edges looking and just he sort of looks more model-esque than they would expect but we're also going to get scenes involving mob members and cronies who specifically talk about either wanting to sleep with him, to sexually assault him, 
or talk about having already done so in the past. And one mafia member named Marvin specifically makes a comment asking Ash if he's ever going to quote unquote make any more movies, alluding to the fact that not only has Ash been a victim of sexual assaults, but that as a child, others specifically filmed that assault to some degree. And this is all just, you know, going to be very pivotal to the character's emotional arc over the core of the series is that sort of trauma inherent to everything he's gone through. And then the other main aspect of him that I think that volume one really spends a lot of time trying to sell is just his competency for what he does because he is an incredibly good shot with a gun. He is the leader of his gang. People really respect him largely because of his sheer ability at what he does. And he's just sort of a smart ass, but charismatic presence. What do you make of Ash? Did you think he was an interesting protagonist figure? Yeah. I mean, we we barely get into, like, the backstory with his trauma. Um, we get more about his relationship with his brother than anything else in this. Um, and then, obviously, his relationship with, like, the kids in his gang and the way that he runs it. Uh, which, like, obviously the whole system he's in is terrible, but he's sort of stuck in it. And he's, like, one of the people in that who is trying to do relatively well, like, he runs a street gang, but these kids are all going to be in a gang no matter what, and a gang run by him with some, like, common sense and morality is better than the other ones that are in, like, the two who uh, kill for that big mobster guy, he kicks out, because, like, they have rules against doing shit like that, without his okay at the very least. Uh, so, like, stuff like that I thought was pretty compelling. I like him making the best out of his situation and being, like, really good as a leader of this group. Like, I think he's compelling. Yeah. I think that's a good point in terms of bringing up the morality of it all. He clearly has some clear-set morals that he tries to stick to. And I think just moving forward in the series, Ash's morality and, like, ethical culpability is sort of just an interesting thing to keep in mind as the crime drama just progresses you know and just everything in terms of like his lot in life versus his choices and such and such and all of that but yeah I love him he's a great character and we get a scene our initial scene of him is essentially him running into this man late at night. The man has been shot. He is bleeding, about to die. And he calls out to Ash for help. And he hands Ash something and is sort of muttering as he dies. 
and he tells Ash, 42 Westwood, Los Angeles, go see Banana Fish. And then he dies on the spot, essentially. And this kicks in the connection from the prologue sort of flashback to the present day drama with again the mystery of who or what is banana fish and shortly thereafter two of ash's gang members show up they're all surprised to see each other essentially what has happened is that a mafia leader named Papa Dino Golzine has put these two up to killing this man. They are Ash's men, but they did this on Dino's orders, which pisses ass the fuck off. And essentially, before they can resolve their arguments, the police start showing up, so they all have to run for it. At which point... Ash goes to go see Papa Dino at his home. And that's where chapter one ends. So that's as far as we got back in the pulp episode. All the West from here on out is material we haven't covered before. And real quick before I get back into the plot again, I'll go ahead and note just something as we cover the series that... Naturally, any series that goes for a decade is going to have some changes in its art. And the most pronounced of these is going to be the design for Ash. He, within a couple years, is going to start being more specifically modeled after the actor River Phoenix. But for now, early on, Yoshida hasn't yet tapped into that. He has sort of much rounder facial features than he's going to have later on. Um, His hair is a bit different. I think just the fervor we read, you'll be able to see what I mean. But he's going to undergo a pretty dramatic shift in how he looks. The rest of the cast is sort of closer to just how they're going to look. They all have sort of their signifiers already like ag just looks like ag but anywho back to the point when he reaches papa dino's house um dino being i don't know what the term is a don like head of a mafia family yeah it's a don like don corleone yeah and He's greeted outside by Marvin, who works for Dino. Marvin is the one who made the comment I already mentioned about having been a fan of Ash's old films. And he says that, quote, I think you're still young enough. So Marvin is just disgusting just immediately disgusting he is the first voice in the series that we see like sexually objectifying ash which as i've already stated is going to be sort of a running issue going forward and far from the last yeah ash just sort of takes it in stride just is a smart ass quips back which I think is sort of 
character work in its own right because it shows the degree to which Ash is used to this happening to him and has sort of had to develop this ability to cope with it and how he sort of interacts with people doing this to him. And he goes inside and he talks to Papadino, who, not that there's just one or that he's a super villain, but I think it's fair to say is the main antagonist of all the antagonists in this series. And the two of them have this conversation in which Ash is basically interrogating Dino about why he was giving Ash's men orders because they basically have this agreement that Dino's not supposed to do that. And Dino's just sort of playing it off like, oh, it was unusual circumstances, just a small thing. I didn't mean to upset you. But more notable than any of that, really, to me, is just this air of their dynamic and their past history and clear history of abuse. And that I think this scene is a great example of how Yoshida can use just, you know, the style of standard rectangular panel sequences and just like extended sequences of characters talking and still sort of just infuse a lot of information visually. And Dino is a creep. They don't talk explicitly details here, but we immediately know these characters have history and there's just a lot of really creepy visuals of, say, Dino putting his hand on Ash's shoulder. There's a panel where, like, he's bent down to get more directly up in Ash's face. And it's just sort of the sequence of him, like, pacing around the couch where Ash is sitting. And you can just sort of watch the subtle changes in Ash's expression as he goes from just like smirking being like a smart ass popping off at Dino to just his grimaces of his sheer horrid discomfort and their talk towards the end of it we get Dino wraps his hand underneath Ash's jaw to like cup his face and he says don't forget me Ash you know I love you sweetheart and this is a relatively short scene but I think it just does such a great job of immediately conveying what a history these characters have what did you think of it it's real creepy. I mean, it, 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 yeah, I, everything you said, <laughs> I'm out of things to say. <laughs> I may or may not just completely love this series and everything about it. But, um, yeah, and I read it once. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Yeah. After he leaves from talking with Dino, we get, 
a brief introduction to the character Shorter Wong, who Shorter is also a gang leader in Chinatown. And although they're not actually part of the same gang, him and Ash get along. Um, They're friendly with each other. There's not a lot of Shorter in this volume, but he's a pivotal character to introduce. He's going to be more and more important going on later. And yeah, we'll get to him in time. But the point of his character just being here's one of the few characters that Ash is actively friendly with. The other main one who we next meet is a young boy in Ash's gang named Skipper or Skip for short, who is sort of Ash's main go-to helper in the gang, his like most trusted confidant. And we can go ahead and talk about this aspect of the art now, since this is the first time that it comes up. But Skipper is specifically black and the main con, I think, in Banana Fish that's just indefensible is Yoshida's style used for rendering black characters is just dreadful. It's sort of a really old style in which it's minstrelly. Yeah, it feels really uncomfortably reminiscent of that. The character's skin is like, it's all like hatching. It's not like a matter of shading. It's like the black characters all just have like hatch lines across their skin to indicate that they're black. And then some of like the renderings of their lips is at times just uncomfortable to look at the writing of the characters. We talked a little bit before on air with regards to the writing of them here in volume one as characters, they're not written in a way that feels like notably offensive or really bothersome in like a degrading, stereotypical, or otherwise upsetting way, but their visual presentation is just really bad. Yeah, like, when you read, when you look at them, it's really bad. When you read them, it's fine. Like, there's no, like, horrifying attempt at Ebonics or anything, but, like, it looks like there should be. And I'm assuming part of that is it's a manga in the 1980s? I'd be interested in seeing, like, other mangas from the same, like, time period and how they handle black characters. But, like, it's still indefensible. Yeah, like, this sort of style in manga, especially in older work, like, this definitely, I wouldn't say it's unique, you know, because I've definitely seen sort of similar drawing before in this medium, but... Again, yeah, that doesn't make it defensible. It just still is dreadful. And for me personally, is the main con to this series that I otherwise really love and have 
almost nothing but positive things to say except where it comes to this specific aspect of the art. But with that elephant in the room acknowledged, we then move forward a bit in time to Papadino still at his mansion talking to some underlings who who inform him that something is missing. And essentially this all has something to do with the man who we saw get shot early on, the man who Dino specifically ordered a few of Ash's men to kill, um, Ash's boys, I suppose, they're underage, you know, but Ash's gang members. And we then cut to Ash at home, just sort of examining what the dying man handed him, which is a capsule which appears to hold some sort of powder, presumably some sort of drug. And it's the scene of Ash looking back on that conversation, or really not even a conversation, you know, just like those dying mumblings with the man who gave him this powder. And as he does this, he then turns to look at this man in his apartment who is seated and I'm just going to go ahead and quote Ash for a bit of it. I've been listening to you for years. It's all I ever get out of you, but I never know what it means. Not when he said it either. He said it and died and you say it and you might as well be dead. Who did this to you, Griff? Please tell me big brother. So we get this reveal that Griff, the army soldier who lost his mind in the prologue, is Ash's older brother, once again linking the flashback to the current day events and just overlaying again with the flashback to the dying man saying the words banana fish to Ash as he gave him the powder and listed off something that sounds like an address in California and just again deepening the mystery of banana fish this makes me forgive some of my blonde people problems so if you've listened to our episode on pulp my main problem with the first part of banana fish was I could not tell any of the blonde people apart whatsoever. And now two of them are related. So it is a little better that they look so similar. Because they are brothers, and brothers look alike sometimes. Yeah, a little bit of an excuse worked in. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a bit better. It doesn't explain why Griff looks exactly like the other soldier who was there, which was just so confusing in that one scene. But um, maybe, I don't know. It's fine. Yeah. But this this is better. This works. They they look like brothers, which is, it's good. Yeah. I will acknowledge Yoshida definitely, you know, has same face syndrome in her artwork. It doesn't generally bother me a lot just because I love her style and I worship the ground that she walks on for the most part. But yeah, I will 
acknowledge there's definitely a lot of similarity in facial structures and such. Most artists have that. Yeah, it's just hellishly difficult to not have that, really. But moving on from the Griffin reveal scene, we get Ash with his, I guess, underlings. I don't know whatever term you would use for, like, you know, just, like, the gang that he leads. But it's a scene of Ash's gang where he has the two gang members who did his, like, unauthorized hit for Dino behind Ash's back. And he's essentially got them up against a wall and he's shooting at them, but he's not shooting to kill. He's basically, like, grazing their shoulders and things like that to just sort of scare the shit out of them and make a point. And he tells them both that they're out of the gang and that he had better never see them again or else he will kill them. And he just sort of sends them running along their way. And he then just sort of talks to the rest of the gang being like, we do not take orders from Dino. We act as equals. We are not their employees. Just sort of reemphasizing the fact that he is the leader of the gang. And in the sequence, he specifically has a little moment of being like, isn't that right? To a gang member who he knows is not happy with him. This member is named Frederick Arfer. He is another fairly notable antagonist in this series. And yeah, just he's going to be a big figure going forward. And Arfer specifically talks about having had already a past fight with Ash in which Ash sort of put him in his place by slicing up his fingers, specifically his, like, trigger fingers, not to the point of cutting them off, but, like, severely fucking them up so that he can't shoot a gun properly anymore. And, yeah, that's just more pivotal plot information. This comic is dense. I don't think yeah. it's dense in a bad way, you know? Like, I never feel... Like it's bogged down. I guess I'm curious if you agree or not, but there is definitely just like a lot of information being thrown out there. Well, every scene's pivotal. Yeah. Just about. Every scene's introducing something that's going to be important later, especially since this is the first volume. So it's all like introduction. Yeah. Yoshida's not really an artist who just sort of like meanders or just frozen a little extra something for fun. Like she definitely very much seems constantly to have very specific reasons for basically every decision she makes and the plots and then like what she presents, which I think contributes to just like the fast pacing and the sense that the story is always moving. But anywho, we then get the introduction of a Dr. Meredith, who is a under-the-radar, I guess. He is an unlicensed doctor who Ash knows. And primarily, he's like a 
a legal abortion provider is where he does most of his work, but Ash sort of, or ever, Ash primarily goes to him to get medicine for his brother, and here he goes to Meredith and asks him to basically check out the mystery substance that the dying man handed him. So he's going to have Meredith analyze it to try and learn more about what, what the is, hell. Yeah. 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 During this point or during this scene, they talk a little bit briefly about Griff. And it's clear that Ash keeps Meredith like at arm's length, you know. He's not friendly. He pays him for his services, but you know, Ash is prickly. And at this point, he's not yet told Meredith exactly who Griff is. So Meredith makes a comment in which he says, besides, what's he to you? Don't tell me he's your lover. To which Ash says, give me a break. And I mentioned these specific lines mainly just as something to think about in terms of Ash's sexuality and in this series we are never going to get a moment I'll just spoil this up front we are never going to get a moment wherein Ash looks at another character or looks at the viewer you know breaks the fourth wall there's never going to be an I am a gay man moment that's not going to happen but Ash's relationship to himself, his coping with past sexual violence, past relationships, and his relationship going forward with AG are all incredibly pivotal to who he is and reading him as a character. And one thing I personally am definitely going to be paying attention to on this reread is just sort of his reaction to characters, ways of perceiving him sexually, I suppose. You know, like we get just in volume one, mostly just sort of brief little comments along this line of people like suggesting the like, oh, you know, this man would be his lover or things like that. And... We don't get, like, a I'm not gay, bro, what the fuck sort of moments, but he mostly just sort of, like, shrugs it off is sort of his way of dealing with the question, at least so far. All well, of which it's is... 1985, and most of the mentions are, like, intended as insults. Exactly. Or by, like, creepy old men or, like, disturbing fuckers his age being you know, extremely sexually forward in an aggressive way, at best. Exactly, yeah. Again, I just... The time period in which this is made, in which it takes place, I think, just adds to how interesting it is from a historical standpoint in the history of gay comics, which is me getting ahead of myself, maybe but it's just like something 
you know, that will be very felt as we read this. But yeah, we get introed to Meredith. We get uh, Papa Dino finding out that Ash talked to the man at the beginning before he died. And so Dino is putting together that the missing drug could have possibly been passed on to Ash. And in the meantime, the NYPD have uncovered the dead body from the opening. And at this point, he is a John Doe murderer. They don't know who he is yet. But they also talk about the fact that their associate Max Lobo, who was the other character of note from that opening Vietnam scene, the one who stops Griff and who survives the attack. The NYPD knows him. He is their ex-colleague, still on friendly terms. And he had invited a Japanese journalist to come to New York as part of writing a piece about gang activity in America, essentially. But... Max is currently in prison. More on that later. And so, or I guess maybe I suppose I should say jail versus prison. But, like, he's being held. Could get out on bond, theoretically, but he hasn't. Hasn't been able to pay to do that. And in the meantime, the NYPD is essentially going to cover, like, meeting up with these journalists for Max. At which point, we meet the deuteragonist of the series. This is Eiji Okamura. He is a 19-year-old Japanese college student. And he is here with uh, Shunichi Ibe, who is a grown man. He is a professional photographer. And Eiji works as his assistant, essentially. And so the two of them have come here to America to do this piece about the gang activity in New York. And the scene sort of opens up with the two of them talking amongst themselves. And for most of it, they have the sort of brackets around their speech that comics in English so generally frequently used to like denote that a foreign language is being spoken you know and just like translated into English for the reader's benefit but before that Eiji's first ward balloon is actually written in Japanese in hiragana before then the next little bubble having what he said just like in the brackets and I just think this is a nice way of sort of immediately indicating the language difference, you know, because, I don't know, it just helps personally for clarity, in my opinion. Like, if it was just brackets, you know, if you weren't familiar with that convention, it wouldn't necessarily be as immediately apparent. So, I just think it's a nice choice. Yeah, you normally get, like, an editor's note with the brackets whenever they're first introduced in a story. Yeah. But this doesn't have that. It's uh, it's very hype for Red October. What's that? With the 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 movie, when they first go to the Russian submarine, they're all speaking Russian, and it fades into English. 
I'm pretty sure Valkyrie, the Tom Cruise movie, uh, but is that Spielberg who did that about the the um Germans who tried to kill Hitler? Pretty sure that also does the same thing where it like opens in German and fades into English. Okay. Yeah, it's giving sort of a written word equivalent of that. Yeah. Which I like as an alternative to just sort of the editorial caption. Uh sorry, do you mind if I go to the bathroom real quick? No, you're good. Alright, I'll be right back. I have to deal with my cat. Burns, what are you doing? No, you're not having pizza. Stop. So yeah, we get our introduction to Eiji and Shunichi and we get them sort of like first meeting some of the cops and a recurring little bit with Eiji is going to be that he just looks really young, like he is 19, he is two years older than Ash, but throughout there's just going to be like frequent gags of characters underestimating his age and just a bunch of jokes about that that he's not like aggressive in return to but it clearly irks him ag is sort of a shy not especially talkative boy granted part of that is also not just personality, but the fact that he is a Japanese teenager in the middle of New York City. And while him and eBay know a little bit of English, you know, he clearly is not fluent in the language. So naturally, he's uncomfortable uh, speaking. But we get our brief intro to them before flashing to a scene with... um. Um, one of the cops, uh, specifically an agent, uh, Charlie Dickinson, who is one of the main NYPD characters throughout, he's gone to the jail to talk to Max Lobo, who's in there for getting mad and punching a cop. We don't really have details beyond that, but his friends in the NYPD have been helping him get and less shit for it than he would otherwise. And he pulls out this magazine article that he wants uh, Charlie to read. It's specifically a piece in a veterans magazine, and it is an article by a former Army intelligence officer named Stephen Johnson. And it's essentially about rumors of drugs back during the Vietnam War and the two sort of go back and forth just like talking about what they know of drugs from that period working in the police and just hearing rumors in the military and such and such and just like lines of narcotic activity and routes and the article specifically mentions a rumor about a drug named banana fish 
or rather, I'm sorry, I misspoke. A group name, but like a group or individual named Banana Fish. Yeah. Yeah, there's rumors of Banana Fish, which was never clear if it was referring to a group or an individual. But just like this mysterious term, Banana Fish, caught up in all of these drug rumors. And Max recounts his experience in Vietnam watching Griff just lose his mind, have a breakdown, and start shooting. And they talk about just like how that wasn't an isolated incident, you know, how similar things happened at the same time during the war and just all these mysterious happenings potentially related to the mysteries of the drugs and of banana fish and such. And essentially the author of the article is saying that he has gotten a recent lead in Los Angeles, which is where the address that the man told Ash about in the beginning was. And so this writer intends to reopen his investigation into Banana Fish. But at this point, Charlie, the cop, sees the offer's offer photo in the magazine. And so when Max says that he plans to interview this guy, Charlie tells him he's not going to be able to do that because Charlie saw this man dead that same day because he was among the cops that was looking at the body at the morgue when that murdered man um, was found. So we now know that the man who gave the drug to Ash was this ex-military officer who was trying to investigate what Banana Fish was and then got got mysteriously, essentially. Which just gives the cop more cause to be like, there's something fishy going on here, you know, and just that he's going to yeah. be working with Max on it. Some more scenes of just like AG and eBay interacting with the NYPD. More of everybody telling AG how young they think he looks, etc., etc. Him just being kind of annoyed. And the cops are then explaining sort of the state of the gangs to eBay and AG. They tell them about Ash Link's about his status as a gang head who is respected by his underlings, basically just, yeah, just a respected leader. They talk a bit about just like youth gang activity and how built on mutual respect it is and how it sort of varies from more organized mafia crime and things like that. And essentially just establishing that eBay and AG are going to be meeting Ash to interview him because one of the cops has a connection of Ash, essentially, um, has spoken to him before and is going to get them that sort of in to do the article because Ash has agreed to it. And at this point, we then shift back to Ash, who has been summoned by Papa Dino to discuss. 
again, the recent events with the dead man and essentially the most important part of this conversation is just Dino asking Ash about what his conversation with the man was like and if the man gave Ash anything, which Ash denies. And Dino can tell he's lying. He orders his men to go inspect Ash's apartment to look for the drug. And after Ash leaves, Arthur, the disloyal gang member from earlier shows up to talk to Marvin about teaming up to kill Ash, basically both of them hating him and starting to scheme together. When Ash next arrives at his apartment again, he's super competent. He can tell that even though they tried to hide it, his uh, place has been gone through, but he of course, had already taken the drug to the doctor to analyze, and he had Griff also taken to the doctor, so Dino and his men have not been able to find anything, but Dino knows the Ash is onto them, and is just talking about how to play it, and he tells Marvin at this point to go do whatever he has to do, to get Ash to confess with regards to the drug and basically the one restriction being that Marvin is not actually allowed to kill him. And I will quote Dino here, don't touch his shooting hand. There's ways to discipline even a cat, but there's no point if he can't keep catching mice for you. So again, just <laughs> reiterating like, Ash is an object to be used by Dino and his eyes in all of these ways, whether it be sexually or here and just sort of like the work that he does, you know, where like Ash thinks of himself as independence, but as they the all really, yeah, like as the mafia don, you know, uh, Dino is basically, like, allowing them sort of the illusion of free reign and control, even as he is obviously much more powerful, and a lot of their work is just, like, doing tasks for the Mafia in terms of, like, running drugs or money collection and things like that. And Dino sort of remarks just, like, why is Ash resisting and lying? He doesn't even know what's going on. So also just sort of underlying Ash's willingness to just, or I guess desire to just defy Dino for the sake of it. And we cut back to the doctor's office. Meredith is essentially just like inspecting how Griff is doing, does protests about just the fact that he is not the type of doctor that Griff needs and the Ash should take him to a neurologist. But Ash's options are limited. And it's at this point that Ash actually reveals to Meredith that uh, Griff is his brother. He was a Vietnam veteran. And they think that he may have been exposed to some sort of drug in Vietnam. 
And essentially, they just talk about Griff's symptoms where he'll sometimes like go into convulsions and say random things that don't make a lot of sense. And otherwise, he's just the sort of non-responsive sort of state that, you know, to put non-delicately, he's in sort of the condition where people talk about someone just like being a vegetable, you know, where they're alive, but they're not really functioning. And also at this point, when Ash name drops Banana Fish... Meredith sort of explains um, to Ash that it's a J.D. Salinger reference. So we get the comic sort of taking a minute to tell the reader about where the term comes from. And Ash says that he never read the story. And I'll quote, I was always more into Hemingway, a short, happy life. So just there's another literary reference. Hemingway is going to come up in the series too and just a short happy life just something to think about with these characters is there do you have anything on any of the stuff I just sort of blew through not especially I mean it's it is sort of Ash at a point where he has to ask for help which like that's clearly a move for this character like just even admitting who Griff is to Meredith is like clearly a big deal for him. And I imagine things are going to swiftly get much worse for him as we go forward. That is a good point. Yeah. Like his asking for help is definitely something he does very begrudgingly. We're getting just sort of more examples of how sort of emotionally closed off Ash is as a whole. But After this scene, we then transition back to eBay and AG talking again with some of the cops. Just a little bit about the gang some more as they are waiting for Skip to come meet up and basically escort uh, eBay and AG over to meet Ash. Um, The cops will not be coming with because... The gang members, understandably, are not going to want to deal with the cops. Um, But Skip is going to be sort of their safety connection, basically. Just everybody seeing that those two are of him and that it'll be fine. Skip, as every other character does, makes some remarks about just AG looking like a baby. And the trio of them then go to this bar, this hangout for the gang where AG and eBay meet Ash links for the first time as he is playing pool and eBay and AG remark about how he's not what they expected again, because Ash is just much prettier than they expected a gang leader to be. And eBay tries to start getting the interview going. Ash agrees to it and to like get his picture taken, but He's not really talkative. He's giving one ward, if anything, answers to eBay, who has trouble getting Ash to say anything about himself. The interview is kind of a bust on that front. It's not surprising that he's not a good interview. Yeah. 
just emotionally and sexually traumatized 17-year-old gang member is not here trying to give his memoir or his intimate revelations to this man he's never met, especially not for an article. But again, as every other character does, Ash remarks on how young the AG looks, to which Ash makes a joke about this not being the sort of place where kids get drinks for free. And we then get into one of the most noteworthy happenings in this volume, an immediately pivotal moment in the history of Ash and AG's relationship right after they meet, where we get these panels of AG noticing the gun at Ash's hip and AG being from Japan where guns compared to America are effectively non-existent asks Ash if the gun is real and after Ash confirms AG then asks Ash if he can see it to which all of the gang members are just silent and shocked and eBay just like grabs AG by the shoulder and is just like that was a bad idea but Ash has this amused smirk and just says sure and hands his gun to AG who just sort of like holds it in his hand for a minute like a child looking at a toy and is just like this is cool and thanks him for letting him touch it before handing it back and AG then asks Ash if he's ever killed anyone with it which Ash confirms and then just makes another remark about AG being a kid. And yeah, it's just this brief exchange in which Ash, I guess, is more receptive to AG and his presence than he is to a lot of other people. You know, like he's not a total smart ass like he is fairly nice to him lets him touch his gun which as skip tells ag afterward is something that ash does not let people do and skip basically says that this is a sign that maybe ag's made a good first impression and that ash actually likes him he finds him amusing yeah so it reads to me yeah he finds him at least amusing he's sort of interested in him at least on a being kind of amused level. But yeah, this is this is the kickoff to the relationship that is the real emotional core of this story between traumatized gang member and sort of naive photographer's assistant. And some people, when they talk about it, point out sort of like, a phallic sexual undertone to this of just AG asking to see his gun and then Skip being like, you know, Ashes never let anyone touch that before. Yeah, I guess you can sort of, if you want to read some level of flirtation into it, if you want. I don't especially in this specific instance, although 
You know, there's definitely Not purposeful. Yeah, like it doesn't feel purposeful to that extent, although it's clearly sort of setting up that sort of initial little dynamic between them of Ash at least not disliking him and being amused by him as a person. And at this point, we then get some cuts back to Arthur talking to more members of the gang who don't like Ash, and they're all preparing with Marvin to go attack the bar and basically uh, kidnap Skip to lure Ash into a trap. And back at the bar, there's just sort of the conversation I talked about with Skip talking to AG and them getting along well and AG just sort of ingratiating himself to them. And just as eBay and AG are going to leave because eBay is wrapping the interview up, Shorter arrives at the bar to warn Ash that he needs to get out because Arthur and some of his men are going to be coming to attack. No sooner does he say this than it happens. They're already barreling through the door and fight breaks out. All hell breaks loose. Some of the gang members that are going after Skip are, by extension, now going after both Skip and AG because the two of them were together at the bar. And as Ash is just trying to fight guys off and everyone else is just dealing with the confusion, uh, Skip and AG get kidnapped by some of Arthur and Marvin's men. And Ash runs after them and we get what's essentially our first like action sequence of the series in which like AG and Skip have been thrown into this car that's speeding off. And we get this scene with all of these action lines of Ash whipping out his gun, shooting the speeding car and from all the way away is able to hit one of the kidnappers in the head and just kills them instantly before the car, the red, the driver and the rest of them are able to get away. What do you think of the action shots and style here? I think the use of motion lines is extremely like, uh, effective. Like the, um, Right after Skip and AG have been taken, uh, and we see like Ash is heading towards the door, and we have this, the speed lines are even passing over uh, Ash in some of the panels. Like the sense of movement that they're providing is like really strong. I think the sense of motion from panel to panel is really strong. Like the action's all very clear and well laid out, and you know who is where at any time. Like it's very effective. I agree, yeah. It's just exciting to follow and again just like selling Ash as the uber competent shot and the sort of the action picking up to a degree that it hasn't beforehand just because there's been so much to set up but we're gonna get a lot more of this sort of thing in the future and AG sort of freaking out in the car. You know, we get these thought bubbles of him just sort of 
facing the possibility of his own death during all of this. And I will go ahead and make my other con noted with this volume, which is that there are a few instances throughout, primarily in this scene, but there are a few instances where the font used changes to a different font and it gives the impression that they've like done it to try and fit more text into word bubbles but it just I was assuming that was the thing with the digital version okay yeah that's weird it's in the printed version too yeah and like my assumption would be it's a matter of trying to fit more text into a panel but it just looks too visually incongruent. I frankly like it less than the regular font, too. I think it's just less nice to look at. And in one of the panels where they use it, the panel is plenty big enough that it looks like they could have fit the text in the normal font. So it just is a very minor note, but takes me out of it ever so slightly. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird choice. Also, I don't know if, for like, these are thought balloons that EG's having. I don't think we need to indicate that he's thinking in Japanese. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, too, because, yeah, it does include the, um, the brackets. But, yeah, I don't think we it's need bracketed a bracket in the for a font. And I'm like, I mean, he probably is thinking in Japanese, yes, but I feel like that's not quite, <laughs> that's not what the use of that is for us to indicate in a scene, they're speaking in Japanese either to, like, tell you this is happening in Japan, or these characters are in a foreign context, and therefore speaking a language that people around them may not understand. Yeah. Like, it's really useful to know when someone is speaking in Japanese, when the other person is speaking English, and they're now saying things that maybe that person doesn't understand. Yeah. But this is thought balloons, so no one is hearing this anyway. This isn't spoken words. I don't know. It is really pointless, yeah. That's a good note. I don't know why they did that. But yeah, Ash is continuing to go after the others, try to catch up. He ends up making his way to this sort of like warehousey sort of area, having followed the car. And he knows it's a trap. He calls out for Arthur who walks out of the darkness to greet him. And essentially when Arthur asks Ash why he just walked into a trap knowingly, Ash just acknowledges that he knew they are going to have to have a showdown eventually. And at this point, Marvin and the rest of their helpers show up, show themselves, make clear that they have AG and Skip as hostages, they demand that Ash get rid of his gun, which he does. He dissuades them from killing A.G. by giving up his gun. At which point, uh, Arthur and Co. begin to just beat the shit out of Ash. Marvin does some attempts at getting him to confess as to what happened with the now dead man in the opening scenes. And what they talked about, if they got anything from him, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, Ash isn't playing ball. 
He's spitting in Marvin's face, et cetera, et cetera. And during part of this coercive scene, there's a panel of Marvin undoing his belt. It's like a close up on his crotch. And it has the sort of double layer to it because it immediately conveys the threat of sexual violence visually that we know Marvin wants to do to Ash because he's talked about it multiple times at this point. Except here, in the immediacy of the moment, he's just taking off his belt because he's going to whip the shit out of Ash with it. Yeah, it made me slightly relieved that all he was doing was going to beat the shit out of him. Which, the way that the scene is presented, we essentially get, like, a shot with the motion lines of Marvin holding the belt up, like, swinging it, and it's clearly about to hit Ash. But we don't see any of the actual beating, because we then move past the actual moment of violence into the aftermath where we see a badly beaten and bloodied Ash being dropped in the same holding room as Skip and AG after getting the shit beaten out of them. And during this sort of reprieve from the torture, we just get those free talking to each other we get AG thanking Ash for saving him and like ripping up his shirt to try and do a tourniquet for Ash's arm to try and help lessen the bleeding from the wounds that he's just had inflicted upon him. And it's just sort of this nice scene where, you know, they still don't know each other well but we just continue to see the two of them interacting and helping each other. And again, just the early formation of this relationship under these dire circumstances where they both just are very good to each other, but it doesn't last too long before Marvin shows back up and essentially What's going to happen is that it's time for more beatings if Ash doesn't fess up and give information. And essentially, the rest of Dino's helpers leave. And the implication here, not even fully just implication because Skip states it outright, but basically Marvin is about to rape Ash. It's like that, or fervor sort of whipping and like violence upon the other two. And so it's sort of Ash acting like he knows what he has to do and just like asks um Marvin for some help moving because of how injured he is. And when Marvin gets close to do so... Ashlyn just starts beating the shit out of him, manages to knock Marvin uncold, at which point Ash, AG, and Skip all begin to make a run for it. And they're just trying to get away, find themselves at a dead end with more mafia guys 
coming up behind them. And we then get another pivotal Ash and AG moment, especially pivotal for AG, where they're like trapped up against this wall, but there's this pipe. And AG is going to try and essentially use the pipe like a pole vault to swing himself over the wall and get to the other side to run and try to get help. And it's established AG was a track and field athlete in high school. So this sort of maneuver is something he's done before. Although with like actual equipment and pads and shit, obviously uh, none of which he has here, but it's him just sort of announcing his intention to do that. Ash is calling him crazy, saying how dangerous it is. And AG is just like, they're going to kill us anyway. So I'm going to try and do what I can do. And yeah, again, it's just we get these sort of silent panels of Ash's reactions and his faces looking at AG where... They're fairly subtle expressions, but we can tell he's, you know, impressed. Again, AG is continuing to just rise and rise in Ash's estimation. And we get the shot of AG successfully vaulting himself over the side. Yeah, it's it's a very cool shot where he's um leaping up over. It's capturing him like right as he is about to clear the wall. So he's like just high enough to be able to do it. Yeah, it looks cool. Yeah, it's a nice like midair moment. And Good sense of motion. Yeah. Using the shirt, especially. Yoshida frequently does use like flapping and like lifting of like fabric of shirts, especially, and just like conveying how the characters are moving and the action shots. Like we get this. Earlier during like the gun scene, we get a lot of like Ash's shirt sort of like riding up or blowing in the wind during the gunfight and stuff like that. And though he injures his arm on the fall, AG then runs away to try and get help. Meanwhile, Marvin shows back up, beats up Skip and Ash some more. Meanwhile, the cops and eBay are all worrying about how AG's doing, how they're all doing. You know, eBay has a bit of a sense of guilt for allowing AG to get in that situation. And then the cops in turn have guilt over bringing the two of them there to begin with. It's a lot of that as AG goes to try and dial for help on the police or to the police from a phone booth before he passes out from blood loss and will go on to wake up in the hospital where the cops catch up and they and Shunichi arrive to talk to him. And so the concluding scene of volume one of Banana Fish, the final couple of pages are this exchange where it's just AG and Shunichi in the room. And it's essentially AG talking about Ash and 
about his own feelings of inadequacy. He essentially just like talks about how good both Ash and Skip were to him, you know, and how kind and, you know, just what they did by him to protect him and such. But AG is just feeling really down on himself because, you know, he feels out of his element. He's out of his home country. He's in the middle of this gang situation that he's obviously never prepared or trained for. And he's basically blaming himself for what happened to the other two because he feels like they could have got away if they weren't trying to protect him. And yeah, they just keep talking about that a little bit. And AG acknowledges that there's something going on with Ash that's important to him. And the AG has not told the cops about this, to which eBay points out that they really don't know anything about Ash. And AG is just like, that's exactly why. And we just sort of end on this note of, I'm struggling to find the right word, really, but just how much of an impression... And like how connected and invested in each other AG and Ash already are having just met and just gone through these dangerous first hours together, really. And the ending note is like one of concern and of caring from AG to Ash. And yeah, that. That's Banana Fish Volume 1. Yeah. Do you have anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to or any final comments or anything? No, not not especially. I, I thought it was quite good. I liked it. We have more of the weird font changes in this as well. In like the last couple scenes, it happens several times. Who did the... the le- hang on. The lettering? Yeah, what's up with that? Kato. Yeah. Who did lettering and touch of art. Weird choices, Kato. Yeah, it's like I understand the difficulty of fitting, you know, words within bubbles, especially in the context of translation, where not only is it not the original text, but also because you're going from Japanese to English, you're switching from bubbles that were designed to fit vertical text and switching it to horizontal. So like, I know that that's difficult, but you got to work it out better than this. You really can't just switch your font suddenly. It just really doesn't work. The thing is the font is still the same size. So like this, this it it's narrower. It's more, um to me, it looks like the kind of default, font you would get on a pro like it looks like Arial. It really is you know, like, like a very... default word processor. And then the rest of the time we have something that's much closer to sort of standard comic book lettering where it's like that faux handwritten style. Like I can't quite identify the font, but it's it's in that family of fonts you normally see used. And I don't feel like it saves that much space changing to the Arial font. And even if I was going to do that, I, this isn't the style of font I would. It reads as a mistake, but it happens so often. It's very strange. It makes it look like they did 
just like the whole book in that sort of Microsoft Ward sort of typeface and then went back and changed it and then like forgot to do those panels, which I don't think is what like literally happened, but it just visually sort of looks like that. Yeah, it's really weird. I quite like the like main typeface of the story, the like standard font, I think is a sort of nice, neutral, like you said, sort of little faux handwritten. It's very legible, just sort of a, you know, just like a nice font for the majority of it. But yeah, that's like the font you expect a comic to have. Exactly. I will know. I found a page where they actually make the standard size of that typeface a little smaller to fit more words into a very strangely shaped balloon. So they can do that. Cato did it on on uh, page one eighty six, but uh, in other pages, we have the weird use of it. It might even be Ariel. It's bland enough that I'm having a very hard time identifying it. But yeah, I mean, I think the comic's good. I haven't read enough, really, to, like, it still feels, it. this is so part one, you know, and then it ends on something of a cliffhanger. So I'm just like, yeah, I mean, this is a good start. Yeah, it's like, for as dense as it is, and as much as there was that we talked about, it is very much just beginning, because there's just so much to set up. And this is 19 volumes in total, so we're one nineteenth of the way there. But I'm glad you enjoyed it, since I will absolutely be making you read more of it. Looking at this, I see that one of the future covers has a dinosaur skeleton on it. Can we just skip to that volume? We're not skipping to it, but we will read it. We will get there, so... Just volume 15 of Banana Fish. Let's do it. Speaking of dinosaurs, what are we planned for next week? Well, a new volume of Dinosaur Sanctuary came out just in time for my birthday. I've read it. It's great. It's, I mean, it's just, it's more of Dinosaur Sanctuary. So yeah, Dinosaur Sanctuary volume three. Uh, If you get the physical edition, you know, don't get get this one physically. This one's a, a real treat physically, actually. We'll be talking about it. Yeah, yeah. More dinosaurs next week. And that will be our last sort of regular pick before we spend all of October being spooky. So it'll be a little bit before we get back to Banana Fish, but we will be jumping back to this because this is my favorite comic. Thank you for letting me talk at you about it for two hours oh you're fine <laughs> with that said thank you all for listening and bye bye be excellent to each other <laughs>